Good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Acts 4, 1 through 12. Preaching today on Jesus, the only Savior. No other name. Acts 4, we'll begin at verse 1. This is the Word of God. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly family. When they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. But there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and thank you that we could be here to read it and hear it and now be changed by it for your glory. Have your way with us in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to talk to you today about the only Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 just told us there is no other name by which we must be saved. Salvation is in no one else but Jesus Christ. He is the promised, powerful, exalted exclusive effective Savior I want to talk to you today also about the condition of your soul whether you're a believer or an unbeliever really if you're an unbeliever I'm going to point you to the only Savior and if you're a believer I'm going to point you to the only Savior it's going to be simple and by the way if you think that there might be something different about me today you're looking at me going what is different about you today I have new glasses I can now see. I can read my Bible for the first time in a long time. I've been listening to it for so long. Now I can read my Bible. I really pray, since I brought up my glasses, I pray that God will improve our spiritual sight. God opens blind eyes. Paul prayed for the church that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart. They would know the truth. That's my prayer today. And we'll set the context here. Um, the context of what we're in now, and I've mentioned this several weeks ago, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, it all starts with the healing of the lame beggar at the beautiful gate. 
And everything that happens all the way to the end of chapter 4 is, is instigated by that. So the, the context is really the persecution that arises out of the healing of the lame beggar. Persecution is beginning. The healing of the lame beggar instigated it. Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. They were entering by the beautiful gate, the, the biggest and the best gate in the temple area, and it was 82 feet tall, gold and silver overlaid and Corinthian bronze, and there was a man that had been lame since birth that was laid at that gate every day by his friends. His job was to beg for money. And so he saw Peter and John. They saw him. We don't want to look at beggars. We think if we make eye contact, we'll have to do something. And they said, look at us. And then they said something kind of shocking, disappointing. We don't have any money. But what we do have, we give to you. And this man was surprised by what he wasn't looking for. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he began to walk and leap and praise God and he went into the temple with them the crowds are seeing this the, the crowds run to them at the, at the portico of Solomon this huge colonnade where the Christians would meet 3,120 of them at that point Peter sees them coming towards them he says don't look at us as if we did this by our own power or our own piety it's not us and he begins to preach. He preached his second sermon. His first one was on the day of Pentecost. And his sermon, the theme was the same, Jesus. The words were slightly different, but he explained God's word. He exalted Christ. He exposed their sin. And then he exhorted them to repent, to come to faith in Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 25. He says to the crowd, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and here's God preaching the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So verse 26, he says, Look, God raised up his servant Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And he wants to bless you by turning every one of you from your sins. He had spoken in his sermon of sins being blotted out. Removed from the page. Gone. Some of you are beating yourself up over your sins that you committed when you were 15, 20, 30, 50. Depends on how old you are, but a lot of you, even if you're professing believers, are beating yourself up for your sins. Peter had just preached that God would blot the sins out. It's on the shed blood of Christ. And he says, God wants to turn you from your wickedness. And we get to chapter 4. And, and they're speaking to the people. Peter and John are, are speaking to the people. And who's coming towards them but the religious elite? We see persecution. By the way, it's inevitable in every believer's life. You want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. It might be physical, you might lose your life. It might be, it might be social or relational, and you might lose a position or job. Next week, we're going to look in greater detail at how to deal with persecution. But it's a blessing from God that keeps the church pure and dependent. Peter begins to preach another sermon here. 
because the early church meets the Jewish religious establishment face to face. They're coming at them. Look at verse 1. Acts 4, verse 1. They were speaking to the people, and the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. They overtook them. Can you imagine? All these religious leaders, they're important. They're wearing weird robes and funny hats, and they're, they're saying, we're in charge, and what are you doing in our place? Peter and John are speaking to the people, and the temple leaders approach. There's the priests from all the different tribes and families, and there's a captain with them. That's basically the chief of police shows up. They go get the head honcho, the captain of the temple guard, Basically, the police chief in charge of all the temple police force. He ranked second only to the high priest. He was an important man. And who else is with them? The Sadducees. Now, in the Gospels, you see that the Pharisees are Jesus' biggest opponents. In Acts, the Sadducees are the church's biggest opponents. They were one of four groups in the first century Judaism, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, and Sadducees. They were the theological liberals of their day. They rejected the authority of God's word. They taught that only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, was the word of God. They rejected everything else. And they rejected the resurrection, said it didn't exist. We see in verse 2 that they were greatly annoyed. They were really upset. That's an understatement. They were mad. Their their heads were about to pop off. They They were mad for several reasons. First, that Peter and John were teaching the people. That they were teaching. And they were offended that these Galileans, these unlearned men, not connected to the priestly office, not approved by them, would presume to set themselves up as religious teachers in all places, the temple. The biggest reason they were offended and they were so annoyed was because Peter and John were preaching Jesus. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So here they're preaching Jesus and those who had crucified Jesus as a blasphemer are coming upon them and they're really riled up. Of course they're riled up. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. So that you could say they were pretty angry about the apostles' teaching. Now, believers, Acts tells us, devoted themselves daily to the apostles' teaching. They were into the teaching. They wanted more and more teaching about Jesus. That's like you. If you're a believer, you want to know more about Jesus. You want to hear the gospel truth. You want to hear what Jesus has done. You want to praise the glories of God's grace. But these people wanted nothing of it. They're very angry about it. And so verse 3 tells us, they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. I guess Peter would have must have preached a long time that day because it was nighttime and Jewish law didn't allow them to have a nighttime trial. But you know, Jesus had a nighttime trial. It was unlawful. Isn't it interesting? In those days, you, if you had a, everyone agreeing, they thought there was collusion. Did you know at Jesus' trial, everyone agreed? But here they're thrown in jail until the next day they were, I don't know, following the rules. They locked him up until the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, could be convened the next day. But do you notice they were arrested for preaching the gospel? 
You can get arrested for doing all sorts of things, for breaking the law, but what about getting arrested for preaching the gospel of the grace of God in Christ? That would be pretty cool and pretty painful and pretty confusing. But here in this situation, many were saved and many were offended. Verse 4 tells us that the number of men came to be about 5,000. That's an aggregate number. It's not all 5,000 new men joined up. So at this point, you've got 5,000 men, which means you've got upwards to 10, 11, 12, even 15,000 people when you include the women and children. But they were arrested for preaching the gospel. Many were saved, many were offended. And it will always be this way. Don't be, don't, don't be naive and think that, hey, every time I preach the gospel, you know, people are going to get saved. I remember distinctly the very first time I had an opportunity to preach the gospel to a group of people. Guess how many got saved? One. And I was really excited about that. It was a whole room of people, and one person got saved. It will always be this way. There will be the wheat and the weeds intermingled, sheep and goats, the elect and the condemned, and it's really hard to know who's who. Only God knows who belong to him. So don't be surprised at the contrast. And don't think you're better in any way. By the way, we're chosen in Christ, but we were not the pick of the litter. We were not choice. God showed us mercy. God showed us mercy in spite of our sin. That should make us humble. Verse 4 tells us many of those who heard the word believed. A lot of people believed. And then you've got 5,000 men. By the way, this is the last time a specific number is given for the, 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 the size of the church in the book of Acts. But ongoing, on a continual basis, the numerical growth of the church is mentioned. Verse 5 tells us that on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. This is the Sanhedrin, 72 of them, 71 plus the high priest. That word Sanhedrin, it comes from a Hebrew and Aramaic word that, that means council. It was the senate. It was the supreme court of the Jewish nation. It was made up of rulers, elders, and scribes. Rome let them rule. And it says in verse 6 that all the big wigs were there. We're name-checking them. Annas, the high priest, who actually wasn't the high priest. Caiaphas, it was. Rome had put Caiaphas in charge in place of him, the son-in-law of, uh, of Annas. But you know what we do like with an ex-president? We say Mr. President, same way. Annas, the high priest. Caiaphas, the real high priest, and John, Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family, all the big wigs, all the guys in the funny, funny hats. Verse 7, they set them in their midst. We got a half circle going. How many of you love to come into a room where there's a half circle set up? Or a circle? Anyone? Who just hates it? Who hates it? Oh, yeah, you're like, they might see my mismatched socks. They might call on me. They might make me say something in the group because everyone's looking at me. Ah! They set them up in a circle, half circle, and they're all looking at them. They're on trial. And then they ask a question. It's a big question. By what power or by what name did you do this? Big words, power and name. They want to know, and I know they already knew. We know they already knew. They've already been preaching this. They've already said, it's by the name of Jesus that this happened. 
In fact, they were very specific. It's because of faith in Jesus that this happened, and he's in perfect health. And so they ask because they want them to indict themselves, their own words. I love this. Peter's on trial, but he turns the tables and he puts the Sanhedrin on trial for the rejection of God. In words inspired by the Holy Spirit, he makes his reply. Before I read what he said, did you know that Jesus had already instructed his, his disciples on what to do when something like this happened? Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verses 14 and 15. Jesus had already prepped them for this. We think that we have to like cram for the exam, right? Like, oh no, uh, you know, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Oh, what if this happens and they put me in the semicircle and they start asking me questions? I got to prepare. Here's what Jesus said to do. He said, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I know we got a lot of students at Grace and it's like, here's what Jesus is saying. You don't need to study. He says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. He's like, trust me. He says, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict the mouth or wisdom I give you. The words and the wise words I'm going to give you. So verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't fill himself with the Holy Spirit. He didn't go to the, you know, the Holy Spirit service station and say, fill her up with spirit. Didn't do that. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and here's, here's what's happening. The power that's dwelling in Peter displays itself very clearly. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that healed the lame beggar at the gate. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. His power of God is displaying itself very clearly. And here's what he says. Words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Rulers of the people and elders. He's not being disrespectful to them. He is, he's, he's being submissive to who they are and what their position is. Rulers of the people and elders. Verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed to a cripple, done to a crippled man. He's like, hey, by the way, if there's, any, if there's any misunderstanding about why we're here, it's because we did something good. So, so let's just make that clear. You got us on trial here. Let's make it clear. We are being examined today for a good deed done to a crippled man. And you want to know how this guy got healed. And so he's going to show them and tell them very clearly that Jesus is the only Savior. Told you that's what we're talking about today. Jesus is the only Savior. Peter is going to dive in and tell us now and tell them what kind of Savior Jesus is. That's what we're going to see here. What kind of Savior is Jesus? The first thing he says about Jesus really is that he was promised. He's the promised Savior. He calls him Christ. Look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you. And by the way, not just to the 72 of you, but to all the people of Israel, to everyone. You, you, you announce this you know, far and wide, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he's dropping the pin in Nazareth, he's telling them, this is someone you know, because guess what? You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. Over and over again in the apostolic preaching, you see people's treatment of Jesus contrasted with God's treatment of Jesus. 
You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. He's the promised one. He's Christ. He calls him Christ, the Messiah. God promised long ago, and the prophets foretold again and again that he would come. This is the one. Galatians 4.4 tells us, in the right time, God sent forth his son. So he's the promised one. What kind of savior is Jesus? He's also the powerful one. Notice the power. Notice the name. By what power or by what name have you done this, they asked. Was the power of the name of Jesus. The result of the power that they were trying to deny. And by the way, the name of Jesus is not some magic five-letter word that you can just say it, you know, Jesus. And, and, you know, a lot of people throw Jesus' name around a lot. What this means, the name, it means who he is, who the Bible says he is, his character, his authority, his power, God's power. Look, I, I've got a good name. I like my name. I love my name. Michael William Shera. I'm named after both my grandfathers. Michael Shera, Italian immigrant. William Wallace Howell, Irish, English, Scottish guy from the Midwest. I love my name. But in those days, your name, what that meant was, that's who you are. It's who you are. So it's who the Bible says Jesus is. When you say the name of Jesus, in, he was healed in the name of Jesus, it's all the authority, all the character, all the reality of who Jesus is. That's what they're pointing to. And you've got to be careful around him because he'll get you arrested. How about that for an evangelistic, you know, encouragement? Hey, you should believe in Jesus. He'll get you thrown in jail. You think that'll work? You know, I drive cross country to see the in-laws almost every year, and there's all sorts of billboards. You know, believe in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Turn or burn. All these, but I have never seen, I've never seen the billboard that says, believe in Jesus. He'll get you thrown in jail. We might be onto something here, huh? He's, he's dangerously unsafe. I believe uh, C.S. Lewis talked about that in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, how he's not, he's, not, he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. You've got to be careful around Jesus. You've got to be careful around electricity, too. You know this, right? Any electricians in the house? I see one. I see that hand. You know, I learned early on, you've got to be careful around electricity. So, you know, when I, um, when I changed the uh, ceiling fan... I just, I'm really careful because, you know, who wants to go turn off the electricity, right? Because um, it takes so long, you got to re reprogram all the clocks, and it's crazy. So you just kind of, you know, have them hanging out there and like, oh, I should have I been more careful. I've actually seen a friend electrocuted back in the mid-80s. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. There was power in, in electricity. Here, Peter is saying, this is, this is power that you better not mess around with. He's dangerously unsafe. He's powerful to save. He, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Dunamis, that's the Greek word. Dynamite. We get our word dynamite. 
So by his name, by his authority, by his person, because of his finished work on the cross, we're, we're able to be saved when we come to him in faith and repentance. He's powerful. Peter's being really clear about this. He's promised and he's powerful. He's the Christ and, and it's the name of Jesus. It's who he is. He's God. In verse 11, he tells us something else. That he's the exalted one. That he's the exalted one. That he's authoritative. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone. Hmm. Stone. It's a reference to the Messiah. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. You see God, and specifically the Messiah, being spoken of as a stone in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Daniel, and you see it in the New Testament. In fact, the verse that he's quoting, he's alluding to, is one of the most often quoted, referred to in in terms of Jesus as the Messiah. Is the exalted one because it says here this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone the chief stone the most important stone so here's Peter in the midst of explaining to, to the Sanhedrin the healing of the lame beggar by the temple gate and he says the healing took place by the name of Jesus Christ whom they crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And then he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Very, very significant. Because he's confirming now that the events he is speaking of line up with Scripture, that they were done according to the Word of God. That they were, that they were, that they were done because God did it. And it seems very clear that Peter now is intending that the rejection of the stone is referring to Jesus' death. And that the placing of the stone as the cornerstone refers to his resurrection and, and ultimately his exaltation. Basically, that's what cornerstone signifies in the Old Testament. The, the exalted position of Jesus with the Father. In fact, look with me at Psalm 118. There is so much Jesus in Psalm 118. Verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's how it starts. Drop down to verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. He answered me and set me free. He's by my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You think maybe Peter might have been thinking of that when he was in this semicircle? He says, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man or trust in princes. Drop down to verse 14. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. There's the strength of God. And then you drop down to verse 22 that's being quoted here in Acts 4. The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner, the cornerstone, the chief stone exalted Christ is the exalted one back to Acts chapter 4 Peter is preaching Jesus as the victorious exalted savior like it says in Philippians 2 God gave him the name above every name at the name of Jesus that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord 
that he reigns in victory right now. So think about this for a moment. If you're sharing Christ with someone and they are rejecting Christ, they don't hate you. Well, they might not like you, but they don't hate you, they hate Jesus. He's the stumbling block. He's the stone of stumbling. He's the rejected stone. There will always be those who are aware by God's grace of their need for Jesus and respond, and there will be always those who despise the grace of God and reject him. He is exalted one that we are to acknowledge. Now verse 12, he also tells us something, and this is probably, probably the most significant aspect. He says in verse 12, basically, he's, he's exclusive. He's the only Savior. There is no other name given by which we must be saved. Now, we in America drink the pluralistic water of the thought processes of the masses, and we sometimes start to think things that don't line up with the Bible. Like things like this. You know, Jesus is good for me, but he not, might not be for you. Or Jesus is the way for me, but you might have another way. How'd you like to be flying into LAX one day and the pilot comes on and says, you know, people, there's many ways to land this plane. What do you think? You know, I'm saying, no, runway, landing gear, boom, go now. You're crazy. Don't tell me there's plenty of ways to land. Yeah, there's plenty of ways to kill you. Sometimes we think that it's just about what we think. You know, when we're preaching Jesus, what we should be saying is, this is what God says. I didn't make it up, but I love it. No other name, by the way, means no other authority, no other power, that no other ent entity can do what God alone can do. Peter is very clearly saying there is no other Savior. He's exclusive. If you're going to be saved, you can only be saved through Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. And when he says a name given among men under heaven, that means every living person who's ever lived or ever will live, if they're going to be saved, they're going to heaven, if they're going to have a right relationship with God, must come through Jesus. There is no other way around that. And by the way, it's so easy, even for professing Christians to say, well, you know, let's just all coexist, right? You got the coexist, and we're going to have the Star of David, and we're going to have the, the, uh, the uh, Islam stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, you know all, Muhammad and everyone else, everyone's just on an equal plane. No, God will not share his glory with another. There, you can't coexist with those who contradict Jesus is the only Savior. So the exclusivity of Jesus is the bedrock of the Christian faith. And all Christians need to align themselves with that thought or they're going to be very confused and very mistaken. There is no other way of salvation. And by the way, a lot of us would say, oh, but we don't want to hurt people's feelings or we don't want to be, you know, insensitive or we don't want to be uninclusive. We want to be biblical is what we want to be. 
The most loving thing in the world you can do is tell people the truth. And if you don't want to hurt them feel, their feelings, tell them you don't want to hurt their feelings. I did this just yesterday. I was talking to some people. We were talking in another context about something else. And I was about to leave. And I said, you know, by the way, by the way, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I don't want to, to offend you in any way. But I, I, can I tell you something? They said, sure. I said, I love Jesus Christ. And he, he died for my sins. And I believe the Bible and what the Bible says about Jesus. You know what they said? Ha, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I've been in arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses before, and the setting didn't call for that this time. Um, but basically, I, just, I, I was praying as I left, because I, I had to go, and, I, and I, I was praying that God would use something of what I said that they would go, what, that's way different than the Jesus I'm, I'm thinking of. J.I. Packer said it really well about the central fact of Christianity. He said, it's the reality, historical, eternal, and inescapable of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God in the Trinitarian sense of being God the Son, who is the future judge of all human beings everywhere, and whom the gospel claims as Savior, Redeemer, and friend to all who become his followers. He says, let us be clear that where Jesus is not acknowledged as God incarnate, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning, there is no Christianity. Whatever liberals in or outside the church may say to the contrary. See, the central focus of Christianity is the knowledge, which is conceptual and relational, which is objective and personal, of Christ crucified. And that knowledge should change your mind and your heart and give you a new loyalty and a new love and a, and a, and a whole new life. That's why they preached, uh, it's Christ in us, our hope of glory. That's why they said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the knowledge, this knowledge of Jesus as the only Savior who is promised, who is powerful, who is exalted, who is exclusive, ought to change your entire life. It should change your whole perspective on life. It should change your thoughts. It should flavor your thoughts. It should flavor your conversations. This continual dwelling on the truth should renew your minds. But if you're anything like me, and I know you are, our hearts are idol factories, and we will come up with a million saviors. Do you know what? As Peter was preaching to them, he was preaching to himself. As I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. I've prayed through this passage this week, and the thought keeps coming back to me over and over again about how, how idolatrous I am. Who, who was it that said, little children, keep yourself from idols? It was John, last word of 1 John. And you know that Peter and John were not coming down on them with condemnation. They weren't looking at themselves and saying, you know, we've got fire insurance and we're better than you. They were looking to themselves lest they too be tempted. They were saying, we received mercy. We acted ignorantly in unbelief. Peter preached that second sermon and said, I know you acted in ignorance. Here's the truth. Believe the truth. But not all will believe the truth. He's telling them, turn to the only Savior. He's telling them, we didn't save ourselves. He's a sovereign, merciful, loving, drawing Savior who draws men and women, boys and girls to himself in his own choosing and his own time. But some of you are trying to be your own Savior. Some of you are trying to pay for your own sins 
and you're professing Christ as, as Savior and Lord, but you're trying to lead your own life or pay for your own sins. And isn't it crazy? I think it's crazy that we make a distinction between Jesus being Lord and Savior. We say, hey, you know, receive him as Lord and then, excuse me, receive him as Savior and then maybe someday in the future you'll make him Lord. We don't make Jesus anything. He is always Lord. He is always Savior. I think that's why it says our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't slice and dice Jesus. We come up with these false dichotomies and they're not based on biblical truth. Jesus is Lord, so you need to go to him as Savior and you need to acknowledge him as Lord every day. It's very easy, isn't it, to blame the Sadducees for their lack of faith? What a bunch of whack jobs. Boy, they're, they're evil. But you know that Satan blinds minds. And it's so easy, by the way, for professing believers to live functionally in a similar way. They might not be out persecuting the name of Jesus because they love Jesus. But they persecute themselves with lies. Like you have to pay for your own sins. Some of you are beating yourself up for sins you committed when you were 15 years old. And you came to Christ. And it says you were washed, you were, you were cleansed by his blood. And some of you are beating yourself up by, for, by, for sins you were committed when you were 30 or 50, however old you are, however long it's been. There's one Savior. All roads don't lead to God, all man made roads lead to hell. He, he's the only Savior. So if you're a believer, keep going back to that only Savior. Not to get saved again, he saved you. But to be refocused upon that only Savior. You know when someone loves Jesus. You know when when someone loves Jesus, they keep coming back to Jesus. And somehow you hear about Jesus a lot from this person. Why is Jesus the only Savior? Why is he so exclusive? It's because he alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He alone was born of a virgin. He alone is God incarnate. He alone lived a sinless life. Christ alone died a penal substitutionary death in our place. And Christ alone conquered sin and rose from the dead. You see, the Reformation meant something. The Reformation meant something. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. God is not going to share his glory with anyone. And if somehow you think that Jesus is only the way for you, but for all these other people there might be another way, then you are saying that God is going to share his glory with someone else. God will not share his glory with another. There is one Savior only one savior god makes it so beautifully simple one option and lastly i'll tell you in verse 12 again there is he says there is salvation in no one else there uh, there is no other name under, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved jesus is effective he he he, he saves he, he really saves he comes through on the promise by the way, anyone who says that Jesus just doesn't work, I tried Jesus, but he doesn't work, doesn't know Jesus. He really saves. He really forgives you when you confess your sins to him. When you come to him in faith and repentance, he really does that. And he is able to forgive you when you stumble. And he is able to keep you from stumbling and present you 
in his presence, as the Bible says, blameless and full of great joy. If you're a professing believer, that's your future. You have your forgiveness, and it's, fut- it's, 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 it's now and it's forever, and there's a future where you will stand blameless before God. Jesus is effective. I'm here to tell you today, there's one Savior, only one Savior. And that Savior, it was promised, he is powerful, he's exalted, he is exclusive and effective. Not just to get you into heaven, but to get you through this life. He saves you from the power and penalty of sin. One day he'll save you from its presence. So look to the only Savior. Behold his beauty. Ask yourself the question, is it real? Is my salvation real? It will stand up if you believe in the only Savior. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, the witness is this, God has given us eternal life. This is written to believers. And, and, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And he came into the world not to condemn the world but the world should be saved through him. The one that is condemned is the one who refuses to believe. I think it's so easy, I think, for Christians to say, hey, I already did that. I I, I prayed a prayer. This is not about praying a prayer and saying some words. This is about knowing Jesus that goes so much deeper. It's knowing Jesus every day. I think we have this tendency to do things out of obligation or because it's the right thing to do. There's a place to do that, but it's, it's because it's the right thing to do, but knowing Jesus as the only Savior is because he is the only Savior. It's about trusting and believing the right one. It's about knowing your life comes from him and that he is the source of your life and then he is the source of your life in Christ and he sustains your life and he gives you everything you need for life and godliness. It's where you come down to the place pretty much on a daily basis where you say, I can't live without Jesus. Jesus said that, John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. I think we should get there over and over again. God continually brings me back to that place where I, I, I feel and I know my complete and utter need and dependence on Jesus. If you're a believer, don't stop believing in Jesus as your Savior every day. It's not a one-time occurrence that happens. It's, it's something that happens again and again. You don't get resaved; you get refocused on the Savior. Look, I examine my own heart, and I know I'm an idolatrous sinner that needs Jesus every day because I'm prone to wander away from my Savior and create other saviors. Think about whatever problem you have in your life right now. And if you're a professing believer, I guarantee you that some of you are thinking, how am I going to get myself out of this? How am I going to work this out? How am I going to do it? And all I can tell you is, go to Jesus with it. Ask him how he's going to work it out. Ask him how, you can, how he's going to get, uh, get you delivered from it. Or walk you through it and keep you right there and be with you every moment
Jesus is the all-sufficient sovereign Savior. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He takes you from start to finish. If you're beating yourself up over all the sins you've committed, if you're trying to pay penance for your sins, or you think that your really good life is so perfect that you're getting yourself the rest of the way, repent of all that. Repent of trying to be your own savior, either by being really good or wallowing in your bad. The only way you can get saved is through Jesus. And the only way you stay saved is through Jesus. Lord God, thank you that we who get so hung up on our sin and those of us who get so hung up on the sins of others that we don't stop to realize that you, Lord Jesus, aren't hung up on our sin. You were hung up for our sin. And you choose us and you use us in spite of ourselves because we are made in your image and we are special and unique, but we are not the focus. Your glory is. We are not adequate. You are our sufficiency. Lord Jesus, you are beautiful. Lord God, let us be captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ and him alone, arrested by his beautiful name, the beauty of the gospel. Christ in us, our hope of glory. In whose name we pray. Amen.